Thanks for tuning in to Goopfellas. We'd like to give a quick shout out to our friends at Tesla Watches who helped make today's episode possible. I am definitely a watch guy. I like a classic, simple, easy to read watch that's durable. And I like watches that look good when they're dressed up and when they're worn with a more casual outfit. Tesla watches are all of these things, but now they're taking it a step further. Their new Tesla watch is actually a wearable wellness device. Tesla designed this watch with proprietary Tesla technology, a turbo chip that works in tandem with the battery of the watch to mimic Earth's natural frequency, which is pretty cool. To learn more about Tesla technology, head to teslarwatches.com. That's T-E-S-L-A-R-W-A-T-C-H-E-S.com. And right now you can get 20% off your purchase using code GOOP20. That's G-O-O-P-T-W-O-Z-E-R-O. Just shop before January 31st. Hey, Will, how are you doing? You must be exhausted. You're on full book tour mode. I am, and I'm seeing patients at, at the clinic on top of that. So I'm doing, you know, seeing patients online during the week and then long weekends. I'm normally grabbing one of my kids and saying, mm-hmm. come with me to <laughs> wherever I'm going <laughs> to talk about the inflammation spectrum. So I'm super pumped. And uh, But you're, you've been traveling as well. You, came, you were just in Hawaii, right? Yeah, I was just in Hawaii for an event. But I'm curious to know for you, because I'm sure a lot of your, a lot of your patients have questions about how to stay healthy when they're traveling on the road so much. Do you yeah. take, and I'm sure you give plenty of advice on that. Do you follow your own your own advice? What do you do to keep from getting sick and to make sure you don't get totally spent when you're on the road? Well, I fly in a big plastic bubble and then I just, TSA <laughs> loves it. Oh, yeah, um, nice. <laughs> and what's inside that bubble? Do you have like really special oxygen-rich air? Yeah, ozone therapy, essential oils, emu oil. It's very goopy, but... Today we have someone that I was really excited to talk about, not just physical health, but mental Mm -hmm. and emotional health. Uh, Today we have on the show, Dr. Judy Ho, uh, who is, she just knows so much stuff, doesn't she? Mm, She's great, yeah. Dr. Judy is a licensed and triple board certified clinical and forensic neuropsychologist, which is a lot. And on top of that, she has her PhD in clinical psychology, um, specializing in comprehensive psychological testing. Yeah, and she's also the author of the book, Stop Self-Sabotage, which we'll get into on today's episode, uh, which Seamus and I both read. We love love it so much. Uh, so honestly, for anybody that's going through like relationship, like if they feel like they're sabotaging in their relationship, if they feel like they are like they, they're sabotaged with their diet or just life choices in general, honestly, this conversation is rich with just actionable steps. So let's get into our conversation with Dr. Judy Ho. So maybe a good place to start would be what exactly is self-sabotage? Like what are some examples of self-sabotage for people who are listening? And like, who is the book for exactly okay so self-sabotage very simply defined is getting in your own way despite you saying that you want something different and this can happen in all different areas of life it can happen in your career it can happen in your romantic relationships it can happen when you're trying to kick a bad habit and it can happen when you're trying to make health diet and exercise goals for yourself and despite you saying that this is what you want and you commit to these goals for some reason you just keep stalling or you mm-hmm. even take steps backwards and I decided to write this book because I found that everybody does it at some some point. Now, not everybody has this as a chronic problem, but mm-hmm. every single human being is predisposed to self-sabotage. And yet, 
people don't really do anything about it, they will use that word and they will use that phrase and they'll say, I sabotage my diet today or I sabotage this relationship. And then they kind of just shrug and move on. And I just realized that it was time to really have some good scientific mm -hmm. strategies on how we can resolve mm -hmm. this problem once and for all. Do you find that people, when they do have a sense of self-sabotage, that they kind of, they're like, all right, I fucked up. Now I might as well just throw it all out, throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm not going to, I'm going to give up my goals, whatever it is that I'm working towards. I'm just going to give it up because now I've had, you know, I fell off the wagon and, and I'm not going to move forward. Absolutely. I think that everybody has a different type of self-sabotage trigger. And for some people, their thought patterns are always very all or none mm -hmm. or black and white. And that's exactly what you just spoke of, Seamus, this idea that, oh, well, since I didn't do it right today, I guess I'm done forever. Right. I guess I'm never going to get there. Uh, because mm -hmm. I ate a piece of chocolate cake, I might as well eat the whole chocolate cake because I've already ruined my diet. And right. people have this mentality, which of course gets in the way because we can always make that moment a different moment. And people sometimes fail to acknowledge that and they just go into this sort of very mindless way of approaching something mm -hmm. that actually makes them feel worse about themselves afterwards. What's some corrective behavior that people can, steps that people can take if they do end up in that situation where they're, because we, diet is a great example of this, but um, maybe alcohol is another one, which might be a little yeah. bit more powerful. Uh, and do you think that, just to touch on this briefly, do you think addiction has something to do with self-sabotage? Oh, absolutely. I've worked with a lot of patients and even have colleagues and friends who've struggled with addiction. And of course, they want better for themselves. They see that addiction is wreaking havoc in their lives and is stopping them from doing the things that they really want to do. But for whatever reason, the stories that they tell themselves just make it so much harder for them to continue to make progress on their goals, whether it's to curb that addiction or to clean up their relationships or whatever types of negative consequence that the addiction has led them to. And I believe that a lot of this comes from the fact that for most people, they can identify one if not more of these four factors that I've identified in my research mm -hmm. as underlying factors for self-sabotage. And I made an acronym because this it's easy life, to right? remember. We're life. Yeah, we're talking about life. So life stands for four different concepts where people can find themselves tripping up more because of this mm -hmm. being their underlying reason for self-sabotaging. And L stands for low self-concept or low self-esteem. So I find, for example, that a lot of people with addiction, they've struggled with that at some point and they don't even believe in themselves. And so if you don't believe in yourself and you don't believe that you deserve better, then you're going to do things to fulfill that prophecy. You're going to cut yourself down. You're going to remove positive things from your life because there's a part of you that doesn't believe that you deserve it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is a common thing that I see with people who struggle with addiction, as well as I, which stands for internalized beliefs. That's the lessons that you learn from childhood, whether it's watching parents or watching other important adults and how they navigate their difficulties. And oftentimes when I talk to people who struggle with addiction, there's always some type of developmental trauma that they've held on to, whether it's that their own parents had struggled with addiction or their parents, because they were emotionally unavailable, made them feel like less than. And when that happens as an adult, you internalize those beliefs without even realizing that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a friend, a really good friend of mine who... I've watched him over the years, and he's sort of like a. Uh, uh, I mean, I think we we all do. As you said, this is a this is an issue that that all of us are affected by. Um, but I've watched him progressively get worse to the point where he 
doesn't endeavor, he creates all sorts of um, reasons why he can't do something for, you know, to, because obviously has fear of failure, but if he doesn't try, then he won't fail. And he's constantly projecting the, the responsibility on other people for the reason that he can't be successful. And it's this sort of blame game. And I, I think in his case, it comes from trauma. Do you think that trauma plays a role in this, in, in that idea of self-sabotage? Absolutely. This is idea called traumatic reenactment. And once somebody has been through some type of trauma, they're more likely to put themselves in the position again of reenacting that trauma again. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even have to be at a conscious level. Sometimes it is, but most of the times it's not. But they somehow find themselves interacting with people who are likely to traumatize them again, mm -hmm. who are likely to treat mm -hmm. them badly. And also to your point with your friend, he's somebody who then would create these self-defeating circumstances and then use that to basically to affirm yeah, his own beliefs. His belief. yeah, yeah, like exactly. Yeah. This is what's supposed to happen anyway because I yeah. don't deserve it or I, I'm just not good enough. Yeah. Do you think the rise of, of mental health problems, do you think it's at the, we're seeing the numbers rise over the years because of better diagnostics solely or do you think there are other factors that explain the rise that we're seeing? Well, I definitely think that awareness has been a part of the explanation why we're seeing more people being diagnosed because people are more aware and people are going to professionals and they're getting these answers that okay maybe you're struggling with depression or anxiety but i also think that there are certain things about our modern world that have actually made it worse mm -hmm. and a big part of this is social comparisons social comparisons are a necessary evil for mm -hmm. human beings we're social animals so of course we're going to compare ourselves to other people for example how do you know that you're funny? How do you know that you're smart? Well, at some point, somebody said, you're the smart kid in the class, or you're the funny kid in the class. And so social comparison is inherent to our existence. But at the same time, social comparison, when done too much, can really make you feel bad about yourself. And we know that there's a lot of research now that shows if you're on social media a lot, that people who do spend more hours on social media, especially people who are just passively scrolling through everybody else's highlight reel, that they struggle more with loneliness and depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. And I think it's because when people take on that social comparison lens, they're oftentimes looking at somebody else's quote unquote better life mm -hmm. and thinking about how they'll never get there and how they'll never measure up. And those types of ideas provoke anxiety mm -hmm. because it makes you say things to yourself like I should be doing X. Why am I not doing X? And it causes you to have a struggle with your current condition and where you are. Yeah. I, I, yeah. You, there's a, there's a, uh, a line in the book that you, um, where you, you talk about that idea of, I can't remember exactly what it was, but you're essentially saying that if we begin with this negative mindset, like we believe we're going to fail, then you're sort of setting yourself up for that. And you have to, the first step is to get outside of your head and, and to, and the social comparison is definitely one of the places where we start. We always look at it and say, well, I could never do that. Or this person's life is so much better than mine is. And so you're destined to, you know, you're not really manifesting and visualizing positivity. Right. Absolutely. I think that sometimes people underestimate the power of our thoughts. Mm -hmm. Even though thoughts mm -hmm. are not truth, they have the power to create truth because you have a inherent need to confirm things for yourself. Human beings have a huge tendency towards confirmation bias. When we see things that don't match up 
like for example, you have low self-esteem and somebody's being really kind to you, mm-hmm. that doesn't match because how you feel about yourself is not the same as how someone's treating you. And so then you'll do things to make them match. Mm-hmm. And most of the times right. you do things to make them match by denigrating yourself, not more more so we don't really do the, oh, I am better. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. No, because our minds are better at assimilating new information into our existing schemas. And so if you carry around this belief that nobody cares about you, Mm -hmm. then you're going to interpret the world in that lens and almost create that reality for yourself. What are some ways, you mentioned social media and comparison and, you know, this FOMO culture that we live in. What are some practical ways that you've seen in your practice that work for people to have a better relationship and boundaries with social media? Well, I think that it involves a couple of things. And one is you have to understand where social media is fitting in your life in terms of your value system. I think oftentimes we talk a lot about goals. Our society is obsessed with goals. We have checklists, Mm -hmm. we have bucket lists, we have new year resolution lists, and we don't spend enough time talking about values. These are internal factors that drive us. This is things that we want to stand for as human beings that we want to be remembered by. And so they're not things that you can check off. These are things like community, spirituality, learning, integrity. You don't just decide that you've had enough honesty and check it off. So you always want to have that, right? So I think if we redirect ourselves to think about our highest values, then you'll know how you should handle social media. So what is social media doing for you? That's adding value to your life. And Mm. if you use social media because it is a sense of connecting with people, then there's definitely a place for it in your life. But we also need to know that when we passively scroll, that's when those negative mental health outcomes are the worst. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to use social media at all, definitely set time limits and don't passively scroll. Sometimes people do this. They'll be having a snack for lunch and they're thinking, oh, I'm just going to check my social media while I'm eating. But usually you're not eating and typing or engaging with somebody at the same time. And actually that passive scrolling is the worst because mm-hmm. you literally are just not even having that kind of community contact that you say you want with your social right. media right. relationships. And you're just looking at what everybody else is doing. Yeah. And I think it really causes us to feel bad about ourselves without even knowing it sometimes. I loved about the book uh is it is a workbook for people it is so much like practical exercises and action steps for people to use and you have throughout the book these self-sabotage busters and you have the appendix in the back which i really like too the blueprint um but can we talk about two that i really loved i like the the navy seal box breathing can you explain what that is because you mentioned it uh, is good for slowing you down and bringing calm and relaxation do you do navy seal box breathing oh amazing Yeah. yeah there's a couple of different permutations of it but the idea of is really to engage your parasympathetic nervous mm-hmm. system because we find ourselves in fight or flight so often that we don't even realize that that's not normal. Our bodies are not designed to do that. Our bodies are designed to do that in short spurts. Mm-hmm. And then you're supposed to get into a more relaxed state. Unfortunately, with all of the different types of anxieties and stresses that we have in our modern day, people sometimes will find themselves in fight or flight for hours at a time and right. not even realize it. And yet you don't have a way to disperse that energy because truly when you're in fight or flight you're supposed to be running away from something or exerting some kind of superhuman strength and yet we have this fight or flight going on and we're just sitting at our desks right and so it's really important that we sometimes tell our brains hey everything's cool you Mm -hmm. don't have to 
stress out. You don't have to engage your amygdala. Mm -hmm. You need to calm down that cortisol. And things like the box breathing really does show that in a couple of minutes, your cortisol even goes down, your testosterone goes up. There's some real biological benefits. And so that's what I tell people when they have a question about this. Well, it's just a deep breathing technique, but it's a deep breathing technique that really doesn't involve your brain to overinterpret anything. Once yeah. you engage the breathing process, your brain does the rest. It's already sending the chemical messengers throughout your body. Hey, it's time to chill out. Everything is cool. Yeah. And so what I love about the box breathing is it's very simple because you count to four and you do different things at different counts. Mm -hmm. And I also visualize a box as I'm going through the so four I, steps. Yeah, yes, I, I trace draw, a little I draw box. A box in my head. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think a lot about four square when I was mm -hmm. in elementary yeah, yeah. school. I was playing four yeah, square. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> draw a little box while I'm doing it. So and they can be really good because human beings we really do love visualization. And so basically you breathe in for four counts and then you hold your breath for four counts you breathe out for four counts you hold your breath for four counts and you just do that as much as you need, need to but i find that most people under a minute they already feel more settled and once you feel more settled and your fight or flight is not engaged that's when you can engage your frontal lobes where right. we actually solve problems and make good decisions mm -hmm. and that's when you can actually then think about what is the best next step instead of reacting emotionally as we sometimes do before yeah, we self-sabotage? Right. I find that that really helps to bring me down. I can watch, you know, you can see if you track your heart rate variability too, you can see how yeah. it totally changes and you develop much more variability. It's amazing. And it's so cool when you see it in action like that, mm -hmm. where you get that sort of metric where you can yeah. see that your heart rate is changing. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been part of studies where it's very awkward. You basically just spend five minutes spitting into a little vial because mm -hmm. they're like a sal salivary Checking your test. Yep. yep, and it changes just yeah. within a wow. couple of minutes of doing that exercise. And so I'm really a believer and I've seen it work wonders for me and for everybody that I talk to about it. And I think that oftentimes we put too much stock in our thoughts. We let our thoughts run away from us mm -hmm. and this interrupts that process. So sometimes we do need to get in there and interrupt the process. So in some ways it's an oxymoron. I'm telling people, hey, be aware of your thoughts because thoughts precede emotional reactions actions and they proceed self-sabotaging behaviors. However, once you identify those thoughts, sometimes you have to pay them no mind right, because they're right. just internal chatter and they don't reflect reality, even though it feels like reality to us. Yeah. Another exercise you have in the book is called physicalize your, the emotion. You said it's yeah. good for gaining control and feeling like mastery over your circumstances when you feel like super negative feelings or you're feeling like really uh, like you're spiraling. Can you tell us about what that exercises? Oh, yeah. Physicalizing the emotion is one of my favorite exercises because when a really negative emotion overtakes us, it feels so overwhelming. It feels amorphous. It feels like it's never going to end. When people struggle with depression or anxiety, that's what they describe to me, that it's like a dark cloud that's always there. But when something's internal to you, it feels like it's going to go on forever. But anything external to us, anything in the physical world has a beginning and an end. I tell people, even the Grand Canyon has a beginning and an end. So if you can physicalize that emotion and take it outside of yourself via a visualization strategy, then it all of a sudden feels more concrete and solvable. And it's also external to your body. So then you doesn't feel like it's part of you. Sometimes people will say, well, I'm just an anxious person, the end, end of story. Mm -hmm. But why does that define you? Why does right. that anxiety define you? Why can't it just be an emotion that you feel or an emotion mm -hmm. you struggle with? It's another object and it's not you. And so by 
trying to ascribe a type of physicality to your emotional experience, you really get to change your relationship with it. So I encourage people, well, if you're feeling sad, let's engage that sadness with your five senses. Pretend that you're taking sadness out of your brain and into the physical world in front of you on a table. How does it feel? How heavy is it? What color is it? Does it have a smell? Does it have a taste? And I actually feel like not only has this been verified in research that recently people have been paying more attention to this technique. There was a recent study that just came out of China and they were actually inspired by the movie Inside Out where, of course, all of the Great emotions, movie. I know I love this movie, where all the emotions are personified and mm -hmm. they basically right. had people physicalize the emotion but imagining it as a person. And they found that the people who did that tended to experience those negative emotions less intensely than people who were just told to describe their emotion and what it mm -hmm. felt like. So this physicalizing it and making it a thing or a person, it really works and it's a really quick technique to get sort of under your belt in your toolbox. Very cool. Yeah, it definitely feels like when you get, I mean, for me, and this is something I struggle with, but I do find it helpful, and my brother's been really good at kind of coaching me on this because he's really good at it. When I feel anxiety, which I am prone to anxiety, writing down on a piece of paper all of the things that are triggering that. What are these things? Mm -hmm. And then making a list and saying, okay, maybe there are 20 things in this list, but but eventually there will be zero. Yes. If there's 20 things and you can work them off, you can knock them off little by little, you can kind of start to take control of it versus getting stuck in that hamster wheel, which I think a lot of us do. And then that often leads to the self-sabotage where you just give up and you say, well, I can't, I can't right. get past this. Because it feels overwhelming. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so the same idea prevails with writing things down because you physicalize it so it's right. outside of you and it's always more overwhelming in your head than when you write it down. It's the same thing with to-do lists. I feel like when I don't write down my to-do list, it feels so much more scary. And then when I write it down, even if it's 20 things, it feels a little bit more like I can actually whittle this yeah. down. And on top of that, because our thoughts are so quick, the average person has about 50,000 thoughts in a day. <laughs> so when you write something down, you slow down your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that in right. itself is a mindfulness practice. You don't even realize you're doing a mindfulness practice, but that is essentially what you do when you write something down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. that's great. At this point, you've probably caught on. We talk about wellness a lot on Goopfellas, but for me, it really never gets old. I find that there is always something new to learn about how we can maximize our well-being. And wellness has a lot to do with how we use technology. I think we're all guilty of letting our phones and our laptops disrupt our health on multiple levels, sleep being one of them. I just learned about some fascinating new technology that wants to help with this, the Tesla watch probably the best friend of the modern technology user. The Tesla watch uses special technology and a turbo chip to mimic the Earth's natural frequency. The idea is that the watch could help keep the body's own electromagnetic field in balance. If we can help our body function more optimally down to the watches we wear, I'm all for it. To learn more about the wearable wellness and Tesla technology, head to teslarwatches.com. And right now, you can get 20% off using code GOOP20 when you shop before January 31st. You do a lot of work with ACT, right? Acceptance yes, and Commitment Therapy. I love I it. I love that. I think oh. it's honestly the, the next frontier 
of mental health care. Can you explain for people that don't know what ACT is and this concept of what you call psychological flexibility, which I think is really cool? Yeah, I agree with you, Dr. Will. I think it's going to be the next best thing that we have in mental health wellness. And it's a third wave cognitive behavioral therapy technique. And cognitive behavioral therapy is a very evidence-based technique that has been refined and developed for all different kinds of populations, but it was first developed for people with depression and anxiety. And And acceptance and commitment therapy is really cool because it adds this Eastern bent, this Eastern bent of mindfulness and acceptance of where you are. Because cognitive behavioral therapy, in many ways, I call it the therapy for go-getters and perfectionists Mm -hmm. and type A people because they just want to know when they're going to be fixed, right? (laughs) Right. And it's like, give me the five strategies so that I can stop being anxious once and for (laughs) our. But acceptance and commitment therapy is cool because it doesn't cause as much of that struggle. It's sort of telling you that wherever you are in the journey, it's also okay. And even if you're depressed, you can still do the things that are meaningful to you. That's a really big message in ACT. And so sometimes people will say things like, well, I'm depressed. So when I'm better, then I'll go and date. Mm -hmm. Then I'll go and get a job. But ACT says, well, why can't you do those meaningful things while you're depressed? So you're depressed, Mm -hmm. but do it anyway. And of course, the side effect of that is that your depression lifts because you have all of these really meaningful activities that fulfill you and make you feel good about yourself. And so it's interesting because the primary goal of ACT is not symptom reduction. The primary goal of ACT is living a life well lived. But Mm -hmm. in so doing, you end up actually having those symptoms lift. And at the same time, you also feel more resilient and you develop this idea of psychological flexibility, which in essence is sort of saying, do what the situation offers or do what the situation calls for. And so sometimes you will cry and you'll let yourself cry and you'll let yourself stay in bed. And other times you say, no, this is not the day for that. This is a day where I still go out and face my fears. But it doesn't make a judgment about when that needs to be. You get to kind of choose and you have control. And that's why I think it's just so brilliant because it doesn't really say, oh, you can't have those moments or you have to have gratitude all the time. I mean, who does Mm. that? I think it's hard to be in gratitude 24 hours a day. It's just (laughs) hard. You know, things happen. (laughs) Bad things happen and people annoy you. And so it'd just be silly if you're forcing gratitude down your throat at all times. Mm -hmm. And this particular technique really allows you that room and that space to Mm -hmm. move freely between having gratitude and sometimes, you know, being upset. Mm Right. There, so in ACT, there are six different techniques, right? Yeah. Uh, so like things like acceptance, being present. One that I find fascinating that I've heard you talk about is something called cognitive diffusion. Yes. Can you talk to us about that and like yes. shed some light on that? Oh my gosh. Cognitive diffusion, I think, is such a lifesaver. And mm-hmm. especially when you know that you are somebody who is prone to chronic negative self-chatter. I think sometimes the things that we say to ourselves, maybe because you think that that might motivate you somehow. I I, I heard that people sometimes will talk negatively to themselves as a motivational strategy, (laughs) but actually it's horrible. It has these horrible, horrible effects on us because, you know, we still have feelings. And and I find that these people never even tell the horrible thoughts in the depths of their mind to their Mm -hmm. therapist because it's just so mean. And, And yet sometimes I think traditional CBT would say, okay, let's change that thought. So if Mm -hmm. you have a horrible thought, like I'm a loser, which, you know, sometimes people will say these things to themselves. I'm a loser. I'm no good. And CBT would say, oh, well, let's change that to a more positive thought. And I think it works sometimes, but maybe there are days that you're just saying, you know what? No, that's not going to work for me. Uh, I don't feel like this is ridiculous. You know, I'm in a bad mood and I don't want to do that strategy. But there's another way. And the other way is to allow the thought 
to be there, but to change your relationship to the thought. And that's what cognitive diffusion is all mm-hmm. about. So it's really about labeling the thought as a mental event mm-hmm. and nothing more. And a really quick way to utilize the strategy is just to add a little sentence before your negative thought. So if your negative thought is, I'm never going to reach my goal, which sounds so definitive, mm-hmm. then you add, I'm having the thought that mm-hmm. in front of it. And mm-hmm. just notice how the wind gets taken out of the sails a little bit. I'm having the thought that mm-hmm. I'm never going to reach my goal. Okay, so now it's not a reality. It's just a thought that you had as opposed to it's already happening or it's going to happen. It's hard to do that, though, because there's so often, I mean, I know in my own experience, I, I remember once talking with my therapist and after like 45 minutes, he was just kind of listening and he said, do you realize how much shit talk you've given yourself in this whole time? Yeah. I didn't realize it. Like I thought I was actually, I was totally unaware of the fact that I was talking about how much I sucked yeah. the whole time. And then and he was kind of taking notes and then he wrote it all back <laughs> to me and I was like, oh my God, did You're I say so all that You're so mean to yourself. Did I say all that stuff about myself? Yeah. And, and so I didn't even realize... Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we start working on is every time I would start to say something, he'd like flag me and say, okay, you hear what you're saying? Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that, that's that really quick awareness because, again, it was so common to you that you didn't even realize yeah. maybe that it was negative self-talk or it was as detrimental as it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that oftentimes I, I have told this to my clients. I've said things like, because people have all of these rules for themselves, too. That's mm-hmm. another common thought trap or trigger where they say, well, I should be better. I should have done this. I should have done that. It's all of these rules and how they don't measure up, which of course creates anxiety. And I just tell people, stop shooting all over yourself yeah. <laughs> because that's what yeah. they do every day. Yeah. And they don't realize that's it, good. that their life is just governed by these rules that don't make any sense. Yeah. We talk about that a lot with food too, because this idea that like, oh, I shouldn't eat this. I should eat that. And there's all of this, this, obli- this obligation oh. that's applied to, to yeah. our behavior. Yeah. But in a weird way, that idea of the negative self-talk is very similar to what happens when we mindlessly scroll through it through it in social media because we're yeah. kind of without really being aware of it we're slowly absorbing all of this negativity and this yes. this this FOMO and we're, I'm not good enough I don't measure up and all of that mm-hmm. and we don't even realize it no no it's a completely almost subconscious process mm-hmm. right because you're not thinking those thoughts per se but you're absorbing that information your brain is making sense of it and your mm-hmm. brain is right. creating a reality that doesn't exist yeah yeah. Do you- I'm curious, seeing clients, do you see food impacting, like the foods that people eat, do you see that impacting their mental health, whether that's anxiety or depression or things like this? Oh, so much. And both of you are experts on this as well. But I I see that. And people don't realize that food is medicine. It Mm -hmm. truly is medicine. And it could also be your poison. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, when people don't feel good about themselves, they also make worse food choices. Yeah, we self-soothe with food. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's crazy. Yeah. So I mean, it's a very literal effect where if you're feeling empty inside that you eat to fill Mm -hmm. that void, that's that's a a very, very common thing that people do. But there's also this other dimension of it. And there have been a couple of studies that have been really interesting. I mean, I just I think that psychology professors just torture undergraduate students with these terrible studies. But <laughs> there was a series of studies where they basically manipulated these students into believing that 
they had low IQ. It was very sad. They, they got them into the clinic and they said, you're taking an IQ test. And then they really didn't take an IQ test, but then they just gave them results. And it was, of course, just random. They would just say, oh, your IQ is in the 10th percentile mm -hmm. or your IQ is in the 90th percentile. They would just separate them into these two groups. And afterwards, they would watch what these students would do. And they set up all of these different circumstances. And they found that for the students that were told that they had 90th percentile IQ, they took them to the cafe downstairs afterwards to get some food and they made good food choices, meaning mm -hmm. they ate healthy food, they had greens, they had lean meats, they mm -hmm. had whatever things that probably would make them feel even better about themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the people who were told that they had a 10% IQ and uh, they would be eating chips, eating mm -hmm, cookies, yeah. uh, picking up like three slices of pizza. And so it really has a direct connection, how we feel about ourselves and what we decide to feed our bodies, because mm -hmm. that is a, a type of self-care. It's not only nourishment and it's vital, but it's also a way that we express our love to ourselves mm -hmm. is through food. And so if you don't feel good about yourself, why would you ever feed yourself good things? And the contrary is also, uh, also uh, common in that you eat those bad things mm -hmm. and then you feel bad about yourself. So it kind of becomes right, this right. negative cycle. Well, there's Vicious like an immediate cycle. gratification. I mean, the thing is that like what feels better when you feel terrible, a quick dopamine hit. Right. You know? And so eating a lot of junk food, which will give you, or sugary food that'll give you an immediate kind of self sense of satisfaction that's very quickly followed by, oh, I feel like shit. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And then that's followed by a lack of self-esteem. I have no control. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that plays into it. And you talk about this in the book too, the idea that, oh, well, I just don't have any self-control. How does that affect um, our ability to self to, to not self sabotage or or, do, or to cause self sabotage? Well, definitely the perception that you have no control hugely affects whether you self sabotage because if you believe that you have no agency in your life, mm -hmm. that you are powerless to create positive outcomes, then you give up mm -hmm. or you just do whatever. Basically, there's no internal compass. You just do whatever you feel like at any time, which some of it can be very self-destructive. And so we all need to know that we actually have a great sense of self-efficacy. And that's part of why I wrote this book, because I felt like people felt powerless. They would mm -hmm. say things like, yeah. I'm just going to keep self-sabotaging my relationships anyway, or I'm just going to be an addict forever. Once an addict, always an addict. And they don't believe that their life could be different and they don't believe that they would be the ones to change it. And mm -hmm. even when they look at other people's lives, it's interesting when you think about how they attribute why good things happen to other people, they believe that it's luck. Mm -hmm. They just got lucky. And so even that worldview of good things only happen because of luck and not because maybe that person worked really hard at their self-development or at their goals, mm -hmm. that can really profoundly affect how you go about life. And of course, definitely play into this self-sabotage mm -hmm. phenomenon. Mm -hmm. What are some practical steps that people can start doing today to start to transform their life from you know, obviously the expert in your field? What can they start doing? Well, I think the first thing to do is to take a look at your life factors. You know, what is the primary driver of your chronic self-sabotage if you find that to be a problem? So is it low or shaky self-esteem or internalized beliefs from childhood? Or is it the fear of the unknown or change? Because sometimes certain personality types have a tougher time with that? Or is it an excessive need for control? Because even though that can give you a lot of wonderful things, somebody who's in very much control, type A, perfectionistic, it can also hold you back when certain things cannot be in your control. You may choose not to pursue them. And I find that that can happen a lot with romantic relationships. Because talk about ultimate not having control. There's a whole mm -hmm. other person in the right. mix that you can't <laughs> <Right>. control. <laughs> so yeah. you have to ask yourself what part of life is really operating here. And I have a quiz on my website that people can check out, which 
we'll give you this answer in a couple of minutes. And so once you know that, and once you're armed with this information, the next step is to really start to understand the role that thoughts are playing in your life. Now, thoughts precede any kind of emotional reaction and any kind of action that you take. So whenever you find yourself struggling with a negative emotion or you do a self-sabotaging action, get used to asking yourself, what was I thinking just before this? Because you'll find an answer and you'll find that there's a theme that maybe all your thoughts are should thoughts or maybe all your thoughts are black and white. Well, I've already messed this up, so I'll just forget it forever. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll find that there are certain patterns that emerge. And once you know what the patterns are, then you can do something about them. And we talked about a couple of those already throughout this podcast that one of the things that you can do is to try to change your thought into maybe something that's more helpful. And I have a quick algorithm for that called yes, but. So yes, but means make a sentence that acknowledges the crappy part of the situation, Mm -hmm. but also acknowledges something that you did well. So yes, I ate a muffin today, but I have been doing great this last week, making great decisions about my food choices, Mm -hmm. right? And so knowing that will kind of balance things out a little bit. But if that doesn't work, then change your relationship. Utilize cognitive diffusion. Label the thought as just a thought and nothing more and move forward. And along with a lot of other techniques along the way, my book culminates in this idea of living according to your values, that all of your goals Mm -hmm. should be tied to your values, Mm -hmm. that we need to understand what that is so that the goals don't come up empty, so that when we finally do reach the goal, we don't feel like it was all for nothing. And also, when you struggle with motivation and willpower along the way, it's just because your values haven't been dialed in. So Mm -hmm. once you dial that in, then it's going to be so much easier for you to have motivation and to stick with it when the going gets tough. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Will, this is where that acceptance and commitment therapy comes in, that you don't give up on something because it's hard, because you know it's important to you and it's meaningful to you and you will persist even if it doesn't feel comfortable. So good. That's great. So, uh, what do you what do you suggest? Because I, I mean, I brought this up earlier, and this is maybe a little selfish that I'm asking you this, but how do you suggest when you have somebody in your life who you can see from the outside is chronically self sabotaging? How can you actually work with with somebody who, when you see them, and if they're not making the first step towards trying to make a change? Yeah, you know, I think it's a very common thing. We see our loved ones suffering. We want to get in there and help, and sometimes by trying to help, they actually mm-hmm. get angry with you because they feel judged or something. And then they all of a sudden take a different approach and they shut down. And so to prevent them from shutting down, there's a really good group of techniques that is called motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. And this is used oftentimes when people are ambivalent about their health goals Mm -hmm. or ambivalent about quitting their addiction because there's an inherent shame involved. Mm -hmm. And so you remove that part by asking them to be the driver. So you ask them these very open-ended questions. So motivational interviewing is all about asking them how they feel about their current life. Do you mm-hmm. like how it's going? Do you like not like how it's going? So in the matters of health-related decisions, let's say they never exercise, well, mm-hmm. what's not exercising doing for you? What is it doing for you? And you let them make the decision about what they're gonna do with that information next. So it's almost like just asking a series of questions that are really open-ended but puts them in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. And these questions are designed to elicit a feeling of dissonance, like, wait, I'm saying that I want to be better and I want better health and yet I still don't exercise. That feels uncomfortable for me. And then as the loved one, once they kind of identify that discomfort, that's when you can go in there with more proactive things Mm -hmm. and say, well, now that you've actually said it's uncomforting for you, 
what can we do about it? Would you like me to refer you to a specialist? Would you like me to give you something to read? And then they won't be as defensive because it was their idea or so they mm -hmm. thought. And mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. really a big yeah. part of trying to motivate these people who have that ambivalence about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through your the blueprint and sort of like how what you know how that works and what we uh, you know what we can expect and how you know how you can use it? Absolutely. So the blueprint for change is really my last exercise of the entire book. It's mm -hmm. how you put all of the skills together. And one day when I get around to it, I'm going to write an op-ed about why vision boards don't work. Because <laughs> while I think that they're really good at inspiring people, uh -huh. for the people who have trouble with it, it's because it doesn't give them the steps on how right, to get no there. There's no action plan. Yeah. It's so almost I, overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. Yeah. yeah, I've had clients who showed me their vision board and it's just it's just so overwhelming. They have a $5 million <laughs> house and they mm -hmm. have, you know, a picture of some really hot guy and then, you know, <laughs> know, them like copy and paste it into it with kids and they're like mm -hmm. how come this hasn't happened to me it's been a year and I said but what were your plans to get there right. like how were you yeah. going to make the five million dollars to buy that house and, and whatnot and so the blueprint for change is really something where you can actually see everything at a glance so the blueprint for change is like a blueprint for a house where anybody could look at it and say oh that's where the bathroom goes and that's how big the bathroom is and here's the door and mm -hmm. so you really know on a very concrete level what you need to do. And so it has your top values because that's where everything should start with and how that connects to your goals. It has the techniques that we've talked about along the way. One thing that we didn't discuss is making a series of if-thens. Mm -hmm. This is based on a technique called implementation intentions and it works really well. Fortune 500 CEOs use it, athletes use it. And what it is is you try to see the barriers to your goal in advance and you write down your if-thens like if it's 10 p.m. and I have an urge to snack, then I will do something else, right? You actually plan out these actions mm -hmm. beforehand. And it really works because when you have this algorithm in place, then when you get to that trouble spot, you already have a plan for it. Right. You don't have to rely on your emotions or your own better functioning at that point because you're already probably stressed out, tired, dealing with a negative emotion. So all of those things are going on the blueprint too so that you know where your trouble spots are and what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And the life factors are on there. So whichever one that you feel like is your predominant life driver, you have a set of techniques there to deal with that too, whether it's low self-esteem or excessive need for control. And so everything is at a glance. I've had my clients take pictures of this and put it on their phone. I've had my clients actually carry it around in their purse. I've had clients stick it on their wall. And it's just a visual reminder every day of what you're working towards and why you're doing it. And it gives you the steps on how to achieve your goals. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Dr. Judy Ho. This is a fascinating conversation because it really gives uh, some great actionable steps to stop the routine of self-sabotage, which I like that she pointed out that we all do this, that it's not something mm -hmm. that is just, you know, oh, it's one and done, but we everybody does it and it's a it's a process of working on it. Some of us are are more prone to self-sabotage than others. And she goes into some of the triggers that uh, lead to self-sabotage. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that it's something that we all struggle with and we need to really take this information to heart the, the information in her book i was going through the exercise i'm like every single one of the exercises in this book is something i could benefit from mm -hmm. i'm going to start start box breathing yeah like, that's a great like today. simple stop yeah it's an easy thing to do and i don't know if you this is something that i've read I don't know if I totally have been able to see this in myself, but just box breathing in the morning, doing it for five minutes, improves your sleep for the following night. 
That's so awesome. Just, yeah, just to sort of increase your your heart rate variability. The greater your heart rate variability is, the more you're tapping into your into your parasympathetic nervous system. So cool. Yeah, I think for me, my anxiety or my anxiousness that I work towards managing uh, my whole life i think for me my anxiety is my self-sabotage because when i feel a certain way like with my anxiety i mm-hmm. it stops me from doing certain things or it sabotages my goal so it really um anybody struggling with anxiousness or any type of self-sabotaging behavior can really benefit from this book yeah, and the blueprint is a is a great sort of action plan to to create a um, you know to create a a better path forward for sure. So for more on Dr. Judy Ho, check out her new book Stop Self Sabotage out now, and you can visit her website at drjudyho.com. That's d r j u d y h o dot com. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.